Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. This is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Anmol Singh, an investor who is focused very hard right now on the cannabis sector. And the reason this caught my attention is because I haven't talked to anybody focused on the cannabis sector in a very long time. So he sees a market with share prices that have fallen off a cliff for 20 months straight and therefore a buying opportunity. Now, I don't know if he's right, but it caught my attention as well because it's quite hard right now to find anything that isn't inflated in price. I mean, this is like the hardest thing right now for investors is to find something to buy, something that isn't inflated in price or hitting all-time highs because seemingly everything around the world is, and if not, it's close. Cannabis, however, is one of the outliers. So we got into his thesis, what he thinks the trigger point is going to be, and uh, I found it quite interesting. So yeah, never met Animal before, but a fascinating investor. And we also got into an interesting real estate development that he's putting together in India because that's where he's from originally. Now he's based in New York, but I'm always curious about geographic safe havens. And he thinks he's identified one on the coast of India, a small town, probably not so small, but called Goa. Uh, small compared to Delhi, so it's all relative. Anyways, here is Anmol Singh on The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. What's up, guys? Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House. I'm joined today by Anmol Singh, the founder of Live Traders, author of Prepping for Success. Anmol, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No, I'm, I'm happy to have you and uh, excited to jump into a whole host of topics with you. Before we do that, for anybody who's not familiar with yourself, with live traders, can you give us the like the highlight reel overview, the 30,000 foot? Who are you and how do you spend your time? Sure. So for work, I trade uh, the stock market and options market, uh, both as a short-term trader and a long-term trader. And then at Live Traders, what we do is we teach people how to do what I do, right? How to do the same thing. People looking to trade from home. And there's a lot of people who don't want to learn. They're like, I don't want to get into this profession, but hey, I would love to see what you're doing. And maybe I could just tag along. So we also have advisory services uh, offering clients, you know, different, basically letting them know what I'm doing in my own account and they can make their own decisions from there on. Yeah. So that's kind of what we do at Live Traders. Do you enjoy that? I love it. I mean, because, you know, I was I was going to trade anyway, right? Whether I teach people or whether or not I share what I'm trading, I still have to trade. So might as well do it because it's not like other businesses where you have, you know, your colleagues that you can interact with, right? You're a trader from home, most likely. Yeah. So in that scenario, like you have to have a community. So this was a way for me to get my community and not just be at my home on a computer, you know, trading. Can I ask you a question? Do you ever feel a bit of, well, obviously you do, but like, do you ever regret it for the stress that you may acquire when you're you're directing someone else's trading decisions? And maybe you make a bad one and they're following you down, down the wrong path and all this stuff. Like, how do you deal with that anxiety? Because I, I, I can make bad trades. I can make bad investments. I lose sleep over those. I'm familiar with the emotional roller coaster, uh, both the greed and the doom, you know, and the up and the down. But when you are taking a community along with you, there's more at, at play there. So how do you process that? Right. So I think the way we do it is like the first thing they come in into either our chat room or our newsletters, the first thing we'll tell them, you're going to lose money. Like in the beginning, everybody does. It's just yeah. a natural yeah. course. So we set the realist uh, expectations in a very realistic manner so that we tell them, don't fall for the marketing hype. You're going to see a bunch of ads from other people, follow my this or that. Uh, but keep your expectations in check. Uh, it is real money, right? It's actual real money that you probably work really hard to acquire that money to trade in the first place. So we, we first start with setting the expectations right. 
and letting them know as well, hey, I don't win every single trade, right? In fact, I probably lose half of them, right? But the key is when you do win, you maximize your gains. And when the ones that are losing, you cut those losses short. So I will still lose, you know, 50 to 60%, sometimes 40% off my trades. But the key is to maximize the gains. So we kind of let them know what to expect in the beginning, right? And then the goal is to, to tell them, hey, don't try to follow, right? Like try to learn why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then obviously manage accordingly to your account. So if I'm buying a thousand shares, well, maybe I'm risking thousands of dollars, right? On that trade if I'm wrong. But if you don't, if you can't afford that, well, cut your size down and start with a demo account. We always tell people first two weeks, practice on a demo virtual, get used to how the movements flow because that's how your real account's going to flow. And then when you make money on a demo account, only then you go to the real account because guess what? If you don't make money on a simulated account, you're not going to make money on a real account. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, I like that. Now, how do you counsel or coach a new investor when they're trying to determine how much cash they should risk? You know, when they're they're moved on from the demo account, they're now in the real world, right? What what do you advise in that regard? So I always tell people like, you know, you should always trade with what you can afford to lose, right? If it's something that you're gonna pay your child's mark, you know, your college from, or you're gonna pay your mortgage from it, like no, that's not risk capital. Trading is only to be done with risk capital. Just like you start any other business. So if I start a business today, you're going to have a business plan, right? You're going to fund your initial business bank account with some money. That's the same thing with trading. You Think of it like you're funding a new startup company. You fund it with a certain amount of money, whether it's 10,000, 5,000, 30,000, 100,000, whatever your, you know, you, everybody's at different levels. You take that risk account, you fund that business, and now you make that business work, mm. right? From that amount. So you put in what you can afford to lose. And uh, a lot of times, a lot of people who make it in this business are the ones that really make it. I've either ha- already have had a job, they've has saved up a lot of money so that they don't have that initial pressure to make a living from trading in the first year. Because I didn't make any money my first year. I actually lost money my first year, right? I didn't get it until like year two or year three. So you have to go in with that timeline that, hey, in the first year, if I don't make anything from my trading, I need to be okay with that. Either you have the savings that you saved up enough money right? Until you get it, right? Or you still have another job. Like a lot of people I know on the West Coast, you know, they trade in the morning from like six in the morning and then they trade till like eight or nine and then they go actually do their job while they're funding their passion. And when they get good at trading, then you can always leave the job at that point. Yeah, that's the good way to put it. It's important to recognize what you can, like when you're talking about cash, you can risk or time you can invest and being an investor, whatever that is, Determine what you can do with consistency over time, because to your point, you lost money your first year. It was year two or three where you started figuring it out. And investing is like that, right? It's like anything. It's I attribute it to like health and fitness. You don't get in shape by hitting the gym really hard once, right? It's a, it's yeah. a, a consistent drip over time that the results compound day after day, week after week, month after month, but really year after year. That's when the real juice comes, right? And I'm the same. I don't I don't day trade. So I, I'd be curious to know your your like uh, your time horizons and all this. I, I tend to be in a position. I don't consider myself a trader, I suppose, between like six months and five years. It's you know, that's kind of where I land. So call that whatever term you want to relative to what you do. But uh, but I keep the hours that you described, right? Because I'm on the West Coast and after eight or nine a.m., I have other obligations, like two businesses. I got three kids. I like to spend time with them and I get pulled in other directions, but it's that like 5 a.m. to 8 or 9. That's my market time. And and right. nobody can touch that. <laughs> and the, but that's the time I can dedicate with consistency, right? Like month over yeah. month, year over year, as we discussed, right? And and over time, you know, I make better decisions too. So 
talking about your your time horizon and what kind of uh, what kind of action? Sure. So I I kind of divide my trading into like four different aspects. So one of them is day trading. So I call it income producing style. So day trading is what you make an income from. Like you trade every day, you try to generate a monthly income, and that's kind of what you would use to let's say pay your bills and things of that nature, right? To live off. And then I have a style called swing trading, where I'll be in a stock for not a day, but like a few weeks, right? Uh, I'll be in a field for a few weeks trading that swing. And I call it that income producing slash wealth building, meaning you're going to get income from it because you're trading every week, right? But it's more of a way to grow an account, right? So you start with a number and you're growing that account. So, And then the third way is, you know, I call it core trading. So core trading is similar to investing but it's done on based on charts, based on technicals on a monthly chart. So then you'll be in that trade for a few months to a few years. That's almost like investing, but doing it technically, right? Yeah. So that is a way again, to take an account and to grow it. You're not going to withdraw funds from it. You're not going to live off it. That's your investment portfolio, right? And then lastly, I do angel investing, which will be startup companies. And then that, I mean, you can have a 10, 20 year timeline before you see any return, right? But that's angel investing, investing in startup companies with the hopes that you know they go public or they raise further money at higher valuations. So that's kind of my investing that I do. So those are the four buckets that I divide my trading into. Yeah, those are diverse buckets. Absolutely. So when it comes to core trading, are you ever concerning yourself with the people, like the management, or are you strictly technical, strictly charts, strictly, like what do you, how deep do you go into the the who behind the brand? Hmm. So when it comes to core trading, I only look at two things, right? One of them is the chart, right? Having the right technical setup. So I know because technical setup, the most important thing about technicals and not the technicals itself is that the technicals will give you an entry point. It'll give you an exit point if you're wrong, right? And that exit point when you're wrong is super important to me because then I, you can, I can take the entry, subtract the stop loss. I know what my risk per share is. So then I can calculate, hey, if I only want to risk $10,000 on this investment, then $10,000 divide by, let's say, $2 stop loss, then that's the amount of shares I buy. So mm-hmm. that's why technicals are really important. Uh, but then I will also look at what do I believe about that sector? Is that sector as a whole going to be more valuable five years from now? So I learned this from one of my guy, uh, my friends who works for Sequoia Capital, right? one of the biggest VC firms. And so the only question they literally ask before every investment is, is that sector, is that business going to be more relevant or less relevant in the next five years? So using those same scenarios, let's say five, 10 years ago, I invested in things like Amazon, Shopify, and you know all those stocks because, well, if you ask yourself a question, five years from now, are more people going to order on Amazon or less? Like that gives you your initial bias, and then you can use the technicals to get in. For example, the next three years, I believe marijuana sector is going to be one that's going to come back. So that's my bias, but then I now go to go to the chart to pick the correct entry and the exit points. Okay, we're gonna talk about that a little bit. Okay, so then where I wanna where I wanna follow this conversation then, because I host these conversations very self-servingly uh, to optimize my portfolio. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about uh, your core trading and, and maybe some of your angel investing endeavors. We'll get into the cannabis sector if you're looking at that, and maybe some ancillary sectors that I'm looking at. Prior to that, though, before we hit record. Uh, you're base. You're you're in India right now. Are you based in India? You're just there right now. No, I'm just there right now. I was born here. I lived here in India till I was 18, and then I moved to New York. So I've been there since. Uh, but I came down here just a few weeks ago. Going to be here another month at least uh, to look at some real estate stuff and finish some projects that we have going on. Okay, I want to talk about this real estate stuff because uh, I'm curious about a trend that I heard you speak about during an interview with mm-hmm. David Lynn at Kitco 
And you were talking about certain districts within India becoming hotbeds for, uh, I don't know, call them like safe haven locations, right? Is this accurate? So talking about what you're doing and how that relates to that trend and what that trend actually is, because I'm sure I I bastardized it when I described it. Sure. So uh, there's a city in India called Goa, right? It's a very popular city. Everybody who lives in India knows Goa. And Goa used to is on pretty much everybody's vacation list, right? They always want to go there. But for the longest time, Goa never had the infrastructure for to actually live there properly. It was more of a town that people used to go for a weekend with their friends, you know, by the beach, have some drinks and come back. So people only used to go there for like a weekend. But now what's happening, especially with COVID, is that a lot of like, let's say, rich, wealthy people are not, they're not tra- they're not traveling internationally anymore that much right because of covid they're either fearful there are restrictions on different countries so they're not able to travel so what they're doing now is they're trying to get away from crowded cities like delhi or bombay and find cities that are beautiful like goa is beautiful amazing nature amazing beaches hills mountaintops everything there so now what i was seeing this time when i went back and last time i went to goa was like many many years ago as a kid probably and then I went back now and I was like, wow, there's like these nice villas coming up, these amazing, you know, high end uh, places coming up. And when you ask around people who are buying them, there's all celebrities, sports people, all the rich, wealthy people, business people are all buying these properties. And now people aren't going and staying in hotels. They aren't going to Goa just for a weekend. They're actually staying there for months on end. And a lot of people are actually moving there. So for me, what I think about, let's say 10, 15 years from now, I think, you know, like how Beverly Hills was, like when it was brand new, it was just hills. There's nothing there. And then it all came up and now it's the most expensive part of you know America. So same thing in Goa is happening now where these villas and these amazing houses are coming up, up, up off hilltops and near the water that I'm seeing the next 10, 15 years. It'll be like kind of like the Beverly Hills of India, you know, so not Beverly Hills comparison, but Beverly of India. And the prices are already getting there. Prices are in the millions for every little small little thing you can buy there. So in dollars. So. I was wondering, yeah, so like relate that to, yeah, sure, dollar pricing. So we're looking at, say, uh, you know, great walking score to the beach, but it's not on the water, but you're maybe two blocks away. It's a four bedroom, new home, new home single lot. What are we mm-hmm. looking at for, for pricing? So getting anything on the water now, good luck. It's all gone. There's no inventory. It's all taken away. And uh, they would all, even if you can get some, the prices in U.S. dollars would be starting from $10 million, right? So like, no, you're not even going to get that because Goa was like a Portuguese uh, colony back in the day, right? So Portuguese colony in India, a lot of people are, you know, everybody speaks English there. It's You have still the Portuguese houses, but they also have a rule that you can only buy from a local that can sell you or another investor. So a lot of these amazing locations are still owned by the locals and they're not they're not selling. Right. So you have to get the approval of the locals and the the village heads and everybody so you can even invest in there. So I think the barrier to entry is still there, which can keep the cost you know, relatively stable. And uh, but good luck getting anything at the beach. I've been trying. Uh, the water ones are all taken away and the people who are selling the prices are going to be insane. And uh, so we're looking at close to the water or water view now because there's nothing available at the water, no inventory. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. 
Now back to the conversation. Okay. And so what are you building? Talk to me about your project. So we have, we bought like a few villas. So we started like a vacation home company. So we're just going to be like on Airbnb, different websites, but locally too, there's other places in India that rented out. So Airbnb is not really going to make up much majority of that business, but it's only villas, three bedrooms, some are four bedroom around that level. Uh, so we got three to start with, uh, three villas to start with. So we're going to start this vacation company in India where we're going to do vacation rentals. And in the meantime, when I'm traveling, I could block those dates for myself. Yeah. Okay. Now, now is this, are we talking when you say celebrities are gravitating towards Goa, are you talking about like globally? Are you seeing like US based celebrities or is it more South Asian or what's the, what's the geographic population? Where's the geographic population coming from? Right. So majority of them are still Indian or NRIs. So non-resident Indians. So Indians who reside in the US or Indians who reside in London or live in Canada. Right. So they're kind of saying, hey, we have all these dollars that we've made for the market going up so much, or we have these investments. They don't feel comfortable now because everything feels so high in the US. Mm -hmm. They're looking for alternative opportunities. So a lot of non-resident Indians are coming in and buying properties because they're, again, they're making it in dollars, putting it in rupees. um, So they already get that inherent advantage. So I've seen a lot of NRIs, not really seeing too many foreign people, but a lot of Russians are here. So Russia, Israelis, and Indians are kind of making up the majority of investors. Fascinating. Very cool. Okay. Something that's just completely off my radar, but very interesting to me. Okay. Very cool. So let's get back to uh, your market activity. I want to stick to your two buckets that relate more to my portfolio, and therefore they're going to relate more to my audience's portfolios, your core trading direction and your angel investing direction. So let's let's start with core trading. What's cashing your attention right now? Uh, right now, I'm primarily pretty much all of my long-term investments are in the uh, marijuana sector. They're divided into a bunch of different stocks. But for example, you can take a look at the ETF, MSOS. Uh, so MSOS is an ETF, which is a collection of US-based marijuana companies. So if you don't want to diversify by having you know 30 different individual stocks, uh, you can have that ETF. Now, the ETF was a stellar performer like a few years ago, but in 2020, 2021, all it's done is just go down. It hasn't had a single positive month, I think, in the last like 20 months, right? But now it's at a level where the ETF originally started with, right? The price that they originally started the ETF, it's literally hovering around that price. And I think what we saw is a lot of tax loss selling towards the end of the year, where a lot of funds are like, you know what, it's a losing position, but we had great gains investing in the market. Let's sell our losing positions, right? So we can take that tax loss again to offset the gains that we've had. Uh, So now that the new year started, I think that capital that exited should come back in. And I also think that before the 2024 election, they will legalize it federally. And so that's going to be a big catalyst that I'm basing my thesis on. But more so, people now, as you can see, the tech stocks have been going down, right? And that's because people, I think, are now realized that, oh, we should not really look for future speculation, innovation, because those companies don't have revenues, right? When you're investing in those big tech companies, you're hoping one day they will. But now I think people, as the market starts to crack here, right, as crypto starts to go down, Uh, People are going to look for what are the businesses that actually are profitable, actually are generating cash. And these marijuana companies are generating huge sums of cash, despite supply chain issues, despite COVID, they're then generating a great amount of cash. And what's going to happen, where I'm basing my thesis on, is right before legalization, like Biden's already going to do the clemency for drug offenders and stuff. So that paves, that's kind of paving the way for legalization. So when the legalization happens, you're going to see all these um, American marijuana companies that now cannot be on NASDAQ or NYSE because it's federally illegal, right? 
mm-hmm. they have to be on OTC markets. So then when it starts to become federally legal, they will start going on NASDAQ and NYSC. Mm-hmm. So more and more funds who previously were not able to invest in OTC penny stocks. Now, since they're NASDAQ and NYSE, those big fund capital is going to flow in. And then you're going to see a lot of M&A activity where a lot of these smaller manufacturers are going to be bought out by some bigger ones. And rather than having these 30, 40 different small marijuana stocks, there's going to be a few, two or three big leaders. They're going to create conglomerates. They're going to have a lot of buyouts. So I think that it's a two to four year time, two to three year timeline for me is where I think all this happens. So you might have to still live through like a few period of downturn. But I think uh, right even as a spark of legalization comes in, you're going to see these M&A activities happening all over the place. So if you're invested in those smaller uh, companies, they're eventually going to get bought out, is my opinion. So this, that all makes sense to me. And this thesis is all based on the assumption that prior to the 2024 election, Biden will federally legalize cannabis use, correct? So, so that's like one of the catalysts, right? The other catalyst is I meant, even if the legalization doesn't happen, right? What's going to happen is the capital that exited because of tax loss is going to still come back. The other thing also is technically you have 20 something months in a row uh, that marijuana stocks have been going down. Technically, I mean, just even if you think about statistics, you're going to rule that table. There's 11 times in a row or 20 times in a row there's red. Like you don't want to bet on another red. You want to bet on a black, right? So same thing here when something's been going down 20 months in a row, even if it has one or two green months, that's going to be a great percentage return on those marijuana stocks. And uh, again, people are still going to look for good businesses and these businesses are doing extremely well. No problems with supply chain. So I think uh, the cash is there. They're hoarding a lot of cash that could be reinvested for a lot of different uses. Right. Okay. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's it's hard right now. It's very hard to find sectors that are undervalued, um, that aren't inflated in price. There's not very many of them, right? One that I, I point to often on this channel and I'm I'm quite weighted in that direction is is the resource sector, right? And precious metals and base metals. Um, they're quite beat up through 2021. I know you watched that sector too, so I'd love to talk to you about that. But a comment that you made within your cannabis thesis was as crypto starts to go down. And I just want to pull on that thread a little bit because I know we're going to see it in the comments. So uh, elaborate on that a little bit for me, if you would. So I think uh, crypto, the, the biggest issue with crypto is not crypto itself, right? Crypto is a great technology. And I mean, a bunch of years later, probably that's what's going to be used. The problem is it, nothing can go up forever, right? If, it, if you look at a chart technically, if it goes up in a 30, 45 degree angle, it could go up for a long time. But anything that goes up like this also comes down like that. That's just how every single chart works. Same thing happened when Bitcoin went to 20,000, pulled back to three, then went back to 60, got ahead of itself, had to snap back. And the same thing happened again. And now like 30,000 is such a key level that under 30,000, you're going to see so many forced liquidation because a lot of people are leveraged up like crazy on Bitcoin, right? And as soon as it breaks 30,000, you're going to see a lot of people being forced liquidated. And I think that's going to cause a pretty sharp drop. So at that point right now, people are still very bullish on crypto. But at that time, when that bullishness goes away, when the price actually starts dipping, when reality sets in, those funds that were entering crypto are going to exit crypto. And then they're going to look for alternative investments. And there will be a time, I think, where people will actually start looking at cash, what the company is actually producing. And I don't think we're far off. I don't think we're far off from like a pretty nasty kind of a pullback in everything, everything. And it even could happen to gold. It could happen to silver. It could happen to Bitcoin everything. That being said, I do own gold and silver, but I I see bubbles in pretty much everything right now. And uh, 
I think eventually people are going to realize that we need to stop speculating. Let's look for cash producing businesses. And when they start looking at actual balance sheets of how much these businesses were not affected by supply chain, in fact, doing record revenues, at some point, the reality will set in. But again, you might have to live through like a pain point mm-hmm. to eventually get that upswing. Nothing will just go up, you know. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I see the same thing. I expect a broad market crash. I would never try to time it. You know, I think we can kick the can down the road where we have far longer than uh, a lot of us thought. And um, mm-hmm. so what's the hedge there, right? Like I don't hold anything in the broad equity sector strictly because of what you're talking about probability, right? What's the probability that, that you know, if Bitcoin's been doing this for the last 18, 24 months, it just keeps doing this. Not high, right? Things correct. And people take profits as they should, right? You know, it's important to do that. And um, and also you're seeing active wallets go down, active transactions. If you look at the shifted numbers of Bitcoin transactions, how many active wallets, all of that, it the, what's happening is the it went down. Like the number of active trading wallets went down from like million something peak down to, you know, I don't know, 800 something thousand. So it shouldn't go down at this point. If it's adopting technology, it should go up. And then what you're also seeing is like uh, people transferring, you know, Bitcoin from their, if they have the USB, they have a cold storage, they're transferring into brokerage account. They don't, they don't transfer Bitcoin from a cold storage to a brokerage account to buy. Because if they wanted to buy, they could still buy it in their Bitcoin account and transfer to cold storage. But if they're transferring from cold storage to brokerage, there's only one reason they want to sell. And that's why, you know, I talked about it like three or four weeks ago. And now you're seeing that the crypto is falling because there's only one reason people would move money to a brokerage account to sell it. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. All right. Cannabis sector. What else are you looking at? And we're talking about um, longer term holds for you. So what I've did is this is uh, four months ago. So we'll say four months ago, I thought the market's going to pull back. It hasn't like pulled back to any extent that I imagine. So four months ago, I personally exited literally all of my long-term portfolio, cleaned it out, went 100% cash. And mm-hmm. I sent out a newsletter to my people saying, hey, let's just trade, right? Because I can sleep well, right? You, you take that same money, but let's take swing trades. Let's not hold on to things like forever. Like let's not dip buy because at some point the dip's not going to keep dipping. So, you know, dip buying people are so spoiled buying every little dip in the last few years that there will be a point where people are going to get caught off guard and that's going to be a problem. So I told my, you know, all of my members and all my people that let's just focus on trading. We take a trade, we take a little gain, step out, look for another trade opportunity, take that trade, step out. And we're doing that. So every time we're still in cash, we're not, you know, have tons of money involved in the markets. That being said, I did allocate a small percentage of portfolio, which have like, I think, 30 different stocks. They're all purely marijuana stocks that I I like, are good companies. I have ETF MSOS. I bought some gold. I bought silver, SLV, PSLV, another ETF for silver. I bought some gold miners, GDX, uh, GLD, and then rest of them are all marijuana stocks. There's a couple another ETF that I bought uh, yesterday, NLIT, it's a psychedelic ETF, which has also been just getting crushed. Uh, and I think, so I'm kind of betting on those things uh, to come back because also the fact that the fact that they've already gone on 20, 30 months in a row, there's not a lot of downside. They're trading around book value. There's not a lot of downside left uh, in that. So I feel the risk reward outweighs because if it goes up, it goes up big. If it goes down short, I lose maybe five, 10% here and there. So I think that's kind of the, the downside to upside risk is what I evaluated there. So my portfolio is all marijuana stocks, um, gold, silver, gold miners. Have a little bit of this stock, Depro, Dragonfly. It's a drone stock that's yep. also came yeah. down from like $16 to $1.95. Now I think it's $1.60, but I bought it at $1.90. So I'm still holding that. But again, that's like one position out of 30. 
NLIT, this is Northern Lights Acquisition Corp. Sorry, PSIL. The PSIL. PSIL. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the psychedelic space? Um, I think it's a long way to go. Like, I don't think this is one sector that's just suddenly going to start producing cash. I think psychedelic is still, we're still five years away to seeing any kind of adoption in this space. I think it's still very, very early because uh, marijuana has to be the hurdle that has to be removed before any of this can ever be adopted. So it's still far off, but they're doing a lot of research when it comes to medical purposes and uh, things of that nature. But again, looking at it technically, looking at the value of this ETF being cut like more than 50%, uh, again, the downside risk versus the upside risk is what I'm evaluating to make a position. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense to me. Okay. Got it. And you're weighted, if 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 I got this correct, heavily in gold right now, up to 10% of your portfolio. Is that correct? Yeah. So I got 9% in gold and I got about roughly 10% now in silver. Oh, I wow. More. Yeah. So I had 10% silver, 9% gold, and I got 2% GDX gold miners. Um, and the uh, rest of those is split into 2% positions in a bunch of different marijuana companies. Yeah. Okay. Now, now when you say 10% gold, that's separate from the GDX. So are you, are you buying physical? Are you buying miners? What, what's no. in that? 9% in GLD, uh, 2% okay. in GDX, and I got uh, 4% in uh, SLV and 6% in PSLV. Okay. Got it. All right. Very cool. All right. Well, look, Amal, it's been fun having you on and, and uh, digging into your portfolio a bit and how you trade we talked about this. You are Delta90 on Twitter at Delta90 and LiveTraders.com. This book, Prepping for Success. Thanks for coming on. It was great getting to know you a little bit. No, thanks for having me on. As always, uh, good chatting and glad to get connected with you as well. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.